Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This week, voters in Pella uh, said no to giving city officials more power to control what books are available at the local library. Later in the hour, I talk about what was at stake in that referendum with the president of the Iowa Library Association. Also, a crop report from ISU's Chad Hart coming up. In the second half hour, we'll meet a delightful writer from Singapore and groove into the weekend with IPR Studio One's Mark Simmet. But first, well, Democratic officials have been saying for months that the fight for abortion rights has become the issue that best motivates Democrats to vote and also persuades the most Republicans to vote for Democrats. On Tuesday, new evidence to bolster that case, victories by Governor Andy Beshear of Kentucky, who criticized his opponent's defense of that state's near-total ban, also victories by legislative candidates in Virginia, who opposed the 15-week abortion ban proposed by their Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin. And in Ohio, a referendum establishing a right to abortion access. It succeeded. What about the future of abortion access here in Iowa? I'm joined now by Katarina Sestarek, IPR News state government reporter. Hi, Katarina. Hi, Ben. Remind us to start uh, about abortion law in our state currently. Right now, abortion is legal in Iowa up to about 20 weeks of pregnancy. There's also a 24-hour waiting period for getting an abortion. Um, There's also currently a law on the books that abortion is banned after about six weeks of pregnancy, but that's being held up by a court right now. Mm -hmm. Do we know when uh, the court is expected to decide on that? Well, um, the Iowa Supreme Court sometime in the next several months will hear arguments in this case. Um, The governor is appealing a different judge's ruling that the law should be struck down. Um, And so we don't know when we'll see a decision on that, but the court will have to rule by the end of June of next year. Uh, This week, we heard that the Iowa Attorney General, a Republican, uh, Branna Byrd, filed an appeal to uphold the state's heartbeat law in the Iowa Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has uh, agreed to hear that appeal. What is the significance of what happened this week uh, by the Attorney General here in Iowa? Well, actually, this week, she didn't file the appeal. The appeal was filed back in July. Um, This Mm -hmm. week, Brenna Bird just um, was promoting that she was filing um, a more detailed argument in the case, a more detailed Mm. brief. Um, Mm. And so actually, her announcement wasn't that significant. But I think that she and the governor were um, just reiterating that they want to end abortion rights in the state after, you know, as you mentioned, these um, Uh, victories for abortion rights in in other places in the country. Okay, so the big question, um, what is the likelihood, like in Ohio, what is the likelihood of a constitutional amendment having to do with abortion finding its way onto a future Iowa election ballot? Well, um, in Ohio, the constitutional amendment that was voted on protects abortion rights. Um, In Iowa, lawmakers have been considering a constitutional amendment that would say the Iowa Constitution does not protect abortion rights. Um, Republican lawmakers passed this proposal back in 2021. And if they pass it again in the next legislative session, it could go on the 2024 ballot for voters to decide. Um, It's really not clear what the path forward for that is now. 
because many Republican lawmakers have said they're kind of waiting just to see what happens with the Iowa Supreme Court. Um, They're hoping that the court will take care of that and rule that there aren't abortion rights protections in Iowa. But, you know, if it doesn't go their way, then they might be back at square one with this constitutional amendment and trying to do things that way so that they can further restrict abortion. And after um, this vote in Ohio and last year, Kentucky and Kansas voters rejected constitutional amendments that would have restricted abortion rights. Um, So they're really looking at, you know, this type of thing that they're considering has not had a good track record anywhere um, recently. So it would really be a risk for them to put that on the ballot. And I don't know if Republican lawmakers are going to take that risk or not. Okay. Katerina Sestarek, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. On Tuesday of this week, residents of the Iowa community of Pella in the central part of the state voted to protect the local library board's independence. It was very close. Less than 100 votes separated the two sides. According to unofficial results, about 51 percent of voters cast ballots against a measure to give city hall officials oversight of the library's actions and budget. How did this get started? The non-binding referendum reached the ballot after some residents petitioned the library board to remove a graphic novel about gender fluidity. Sam Helnick joins me now. Sam is the Iowa Library Association president. Welcome to our program, Sam. Well, thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you today. As the Iowa Library Association president, what's your reaction to the narrow defeat of this referendum? I am so heartened by Iowans showing up for libraries on Election Day. Um, I think it really demonstrated that Iowans are pleased with the historic and transparent processes that Iowa libraries operate on. And I'm just delighted to see how valued libraries are in the state. This is a a culmination of a two-year political fight over LGBTQ rights in Pella. I wonder, Sam, how and when this got onto your radar? Oh, that's a great question. So Iowa is one of those really unique states that has open access through state tax dollars, which means that you and I can have library cards at about 500 different public libraries around the state. We actually have more public libraries per capita than any other in the nation. So this got on my radar as a patron um, because what affects one library potentially affects us all. And so I was hearing these conversations taking place in that community first as a patron about three years ago, and then just also as a colleague and a friend in the profession. And then um, lastly, with my ILA hat on as the current president, just sort of keep an eye on it because conversations about libraries around the state are always fascinating and um, informative to me. Yeah. More than keeping an eye on it uh, recently, have you been in touch with that library? Have they reached out for advice to you? So we do have our legislative priorities every single year that we um, present um, to membership and they vote on. And Those are typical um, core values of the profession, whether it's autonomy of the reader, autonomy of like the individual school board or library board, autonomy of the community making the decision, but also champion access for all limiting barriers that would um, impede access to information and the right to knowledge. But this also would include intellectual freedom, the freedom to um, speak, the freedom to read, um, the freedom to grievance your government. So obviously having some long-form conversations, trying to encourage folks, but honoring the process in the local space that it was taking shape in was um, very important to us because it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's been successful for libraries around the state. 
for for several several years. Yeah, this was a non-binding referendum, and um, that means had it passed, the city council in Pella would have then decided whether to change Pella's laws and give themselves more oversight of the library board. What would have been the implications had this referendum passed? I think that it was a symbolic implication. I like to think about the fact that we are the champions of intellectual freedom in the Library Bill of Rights. It was written in 1938 in Des Moines before it was adopted nationally by the American Library Association in 1939. So I thought it was great to see a community having a robust conversation about their library. I thought it was excellent that a community came out and voted um, to trust themselves in the transparent and historical processes that they already have in place through policy and with the library board. But I also think it, we have to be prepared to have these these difficult and hard conversations, and I am proud of the way that um, Pella showed up and her, made their voices matter. Sam, explain a little bit why you think it would have been a problem for the Pella City Council to possibly change their laws and to give themselves more oversight of the library board. After all, the City Council members are elected. They are accountable to the residents of Pella, Right. That's an excellent point. I think it comes down to the consolidation of power and engagement. Um, What I love about the current processes and procedures and uh, structures we have in place for Iowa libraries is that it asks more people to come to the table. And so when more people come to the table, we're obviously more engaged with our libraries. Um, We have our fingerprints on what's taking place in local governance um, and information dissemination. But then we also... um, relieve ourselves from from the burden of having a small group of people having to make certain decisions on everything, right? Because we have library boards, we have airport boards, we have climate action department boards. And I think it's very useful for us in efficiency, but also representation and transparency to have our elected officials appoint boards to, to focus on that important and complex work and then report back. It also gives me an opportunity to be engaged in my in my community without necessarily serving on a very narrow slate of candidates, right? At issue here was Gender Queer, a memoir, the title of it, a 2019 graphic novel that includes sexual images, uh, explains how the author of the memoir came to identify outside of the gender binary. And according to the Des Moines Register, parents challenged this book's presence in public school libraries at least eight times beginning in August of 2020. Most critics of this book charged that uh, gender queer is pornographic. Pella Library staff had placed the book in the building's adult section. What do you say to parents who are concerned about a book like this being available in a public library, a taxpayer-funded public library? Why? I think it's important to recognize that the best advocacy for libraries is to use it because when you use your library, you recognize where materials are shelved and how a library operates and that libraries operate successfully when we rely on the autonomy of not only the reader, but then also caregivers or parents. I think it's essential that I am not making those decisions on behalf of other people and I trust that they don't choose to make those decisions on behalf of me. I am really proud of libraries and how we have set up processes to honor the First Amendment, including the right to grievance your government, which would be a reconsideration or a challenge to a material. But I also think that we need to hold space for when those processes have taken place and the majority of the community has spoken and this is what they want. I have to honor what the community 
asks me to do. I'm a steward of a collection, and it is my responsibility to make materials and information as readily available to you as possible, um, because that's opportunity that we breathe into the communities that we serve. But um, I can't do this independently. No library does this independently. We do this in community, and we trust that communities can reconcile these processes and have these difficult conversations. And so, again, I'm, I'm proud of those who are applying themselves to those processes, and I invite everybody to the table. We will grab more table chairs. We will make the bench longer. But we do this really good work together. And we'll be back in just a moment with more of my conversation recorded earlier today with the president of the Iowa Library Association, Sam Helmick. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at CorridorVein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get back to that conversation with the Iowa Library Association President, Sam Helmick. The conversation concerning the narrowly defeated referendum earlier this week in Pella that would have given city officials there more power to control what books are available at the local public library. What do you believe made the difference that allowed the referendum to be defeated in the community of Pella, knowing what you do? I imagine it's because many Iowans hold the same feeling that maybe I have, right? Um, My favorite banned book, Ben, hasn't been written yet. My favorite banned book is your book that is your favorite banned book because for me, It's the process of being able to access information. It's the process for communities to be able to have difficult conversations. It's the process where we can examine different perspectives and facets of life through this third-person narrative and the safety of a book that I'm here to protect. And so I'm wondering if maybe other Iowans feel that way too, where there's a book for every reader and there's a reader for every book. And we all get to kind of decide that for ourselves or we trust our caregivers and parents to decide that on behalf of their own families. And so we want to continue to honor those processes. I suspect that maybe more people feel that the processes are important and that we can trust ourselves to work with them than not. Mm -hmm. As you well know, this debate in Pella mirrors a national debate driven by conservatives over what books taxpayer-funded libraries should carry Are there other places in the country where other public libraries have faced possible threats like this to their independence? Yes, um, we've been seeing this happening in Florida, Missouri, Montana, Texas. In fact, um, we're just about a year behind Florida and about two years behind Texas, and we're learning from those lessons. Um, We had the second most library adverse bills in the nation last year. We tied second place with Missouri who were threatened to lose all of their state library funding last year, if you recall, and just behind Texas because everything's bigger than Texas. And we anticipate from watching other states and learning those lessons that public libraries will be part of the discourse next year. Um, We're simultaneously seeing a culture war take place with topics, but then also a class war take place with funding. And I'm really looking forward and am heartened by the Iowans that are showing up and voting and speaking about libraries to continue this good discourse in the months to come. 
you mentioned the Iowa legislature, the coming session. Where do you think this debate is headed? Oh, um, I think that the debate might be um, similar to what we've been seeing in schools where um, we are no longer trusting ourselves to navigate our families in those spaces. And so we want to create structures or appeal to a higher consolidated power to make those decisions for us. And I am an advocate for thinking that families can navigate both school libraries and public libraries so that they can serve the most people best. Um, And so whether that is manifested in seeing a referendum um, be expanded, like we saw in Pella at a larger level, or if it's just, you know, like um, losing the library levies, 97 libraries across the state lost levy funding overnight, some of them significant portions of their budget. I think that we may see more of that to come. While it may not even be directed at libraries, um, the effects are the same. And so I'm worried about both autonomy of readers and uh, resourcing libraries in the future. You know, um, Sam, we've grown up with public libraries in our country and in our state, uh, having lived abroad for many years. I know from that experience that public libraries, like the ones we have, are not um, all around the world. In fact, it's very special here in the U.S. I wonder if you can place this debate in the in some historical context. Um, traditionally, how independent public libraries are here, and what's the thinking behind that independence? Oh, you bring up one of my favorite things that I get to do at my desk. Um, I, I work in a college town, so we'll have international students come in, and they're always so surprised and happy about the free library services that the Iowa City Public Library or Iowa libraries or libraries around the nation are able to provide for free. Um, so you're absolutely right that this is something unique and precious that we need to continue to uphold and, and support. And I, I think the historical context there is that when you look at this unique form of government, this experiment that our founders decided they wanted to explore, they came up with structures to help us succeed. Some of those were public schools, some of that was public post, and that was obviously public and free libraries. They knew that these mechanisms were going to be necessary for us to continue on and succeed. So I believe that historically we can see them as the bedrock of what we have grown and how we have evolved. And then additionally, we are in an information age. We knew that the next civil rights movement would take place on the internet and in libraries because that's where the information is developed and curated and easily available. But I think that it's essential to remember that information is power and that free people read freely and that Iowa has a very historic piece in this entire story with our Library Bill of Rights and that it will be really wonderful if we continue to pass that torch on to the next generation. Sam Helmick is the president of the Iowa Library Association. Thank you for your views today, Sam. Thank you for your time. It was lovely to discuss them with you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Nursing homes across the country and here in Iowa in the news lately, efforts by the Biden administration to impose mandatory staffing levels in those nursing homes that collect taxpayer money through the Medicare and Medicaid programs. In response, last week, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds joined 14 other Republican governors in announcing their opposition to this proposal. They characterized it as an unnecessary one-size-fits-all staff requirement. Let's talk about it with Clark Kaufman, Deputy Editor with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hi, Clark. Hi. Hi. Tell us more about 
what the Biden administration is proposing and why. What's driving it? Well, what's driving it is it's long been recognized, even within the industry, that the biggest contributor to poor quality care in nursing homes is insufficient staff. And that's long been recognized, but Iowa, like most states and federally, there's, there's always been a requirement simply that care facilities have sufficient staff, however you define that. And because that's so hard to define, uh, homes continually, not just in Iowa, but elsewhere, are cited again and again and again for insufficient staff. So the Biden administration has attempted to address that, but they faced a lot of pushback from the industry because, of course, personnel costs are the single biggest uh, costs that nursing homes typically have. So um, the interesting thing about the Biden administration proposal is that it's even received a lot of pushback from advocates for seniors for not going nearly far enough. Okay, to, to the Republican governors, including our governor who object to it, why do they say this is a bad idea? <laughs> also, given that some say it doesn't even go far enough. Yeah, well, the opposition from the governors and from the industry is based on the fact that uh, healthcare workers, there's a real shortage of those, obviously, right now. But historically, the industry has always been opposed to any sort of staffing requirements. And they say this specific rule, the governors say this, would force more than 80 percent of facilities nationwide to hire more staff. But at the same time, they also say that it would cause many long-term care facilities in Iowa and elsewhere to actually shut down. Mm -hmm. As someone who has covered Iowa care facilities in depth for quite a while, Clark, how do you evaluate these uh, opposing views? I mean, how realistic is it for nursing homes to provide adequate care with current staff levels in some of them? It it is extremely difficult uh, currently because of the staffing shortages. But what's notable about this proposal is that it basically calls for about three hours of nursing care per day per resident. Now, that's actually less than the three and three quarter hours that homes typically are currently providing. Uh, The rule goes on to say there must be an RN on site 24 hours per day. That's new. Uh, But then it simply adds that the homes must maintain sufficient additional nursing personnel to care for residents. And that's the exact same unenforceable requirement that has existed for years. So that's where a lot of the opposition from uh, advocates for seniors comes in. Okay, in the final seconds of our conversation, Clark, where do you see this heading? I I don't see it getting approved. I I think this just kicks the can down the road. I mean, if you don't have any of the stakeholders, the industry or the advocates for seniors uh, backing this thing, I, I don't see that it goes anywhere. Now, maybe it does get approved, but if it does, as I say, it's not likely to have any impact at all on the quality of care. Okay. And and, um, we have to go, Clark, but I'll just mention this ties in with a lot of your very important reporting um, about um, Iowa nursing homes facing potential fines for all kinds of things. Uh, Check out Clark Kaufman's uh, work. uh, Really great at Iowa Capital Dispatch. Clark is deputy editor at Iowa Capital Dispatch. Thank you so much, Clark. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up a little bit later in the program, we meet a delightful writer from Singapore, and we groove into the weekend with IPR Studio One's Mark Simmet. But first, well, we're near the end of the harvest season in the state. Let's check in with Chad Hart. Chad, professor of economics. He's a crop markets specialist and extension specialist at Iowa State University. Hi, Chad. 
How we doing, Ben? Doing fine. How much of the harvest is in? Ahead of schedule? Yeah, we're ahead of schedule. So right now, about 90% of the corn is in. Nearly all the soybeans are in. So we're running several days in, in front of usual here. And you can sort of chalk that up to the drought. It helped bring these crops in earlier and allowed us to bring in that harvest sooner. Harvest conditions have been pretty good, haven't they, over the last few days? They really have. So we've been able to, like I say, bring in this crop in earlier. And, and along with that, we've been finding that farmers have found that their yields were a little better than they had expected when they entered in the fields. Go into that a little more, Chad. How do the yields look uh, based on the season? Sure. So... USDA actually recently updated their estimates for yields across the country. And what they found for Iowa is we're looking at a 200 bushel per acre average on our corn, which basically lines up with what we saw last year as well. So two very strong years back to back. On the soybean side, they're estimating us at 58 bushels per acre, which is about a half a bushel less than what we had last year, but still a really good yield considering the dry conditions we had throughout the growing season. That's really a surprise when we had conversations with you or other uh, your colleagues there at ISU Extension. Uh, you know, the drought, from what we could tell, would take a, a larger impact, but if it, it didn't, it, was that a surprise? It is a surprise, but I think it also speaks to, one, when we did see those rains, they came at, let's call it the most optimal times. We did get that moisture when the crop desperately needed it. Also, we've seen these crop varieties that have been developed, especially over the past couple of decades, there's been a lot of emphasis on drought tolerance. And I would say that research and development there on the seed side has really paid off over the last couple of years. Tell us more about the condition of the crops, the, the beans and the, and the corns coming in. How are they? They're actually, like I say, looking pretty good. And the idea is that we did see these good yields, yet when they came in, because of the dry conditions, they came in at you know optimal moisture. So we've been able to move these crops into the marketing stream very quickly because of that. Okay, so you, you mean you're referring to uh, in, in wet falls, we need to have some drying take place, right? That's what you mean? That is correct. Usually, I mean, when you think about our falls, they do tend to be a little wetter, and that means the crops retain a little more moisture. And we want the crops dried down to a level where we can store them for a longer period of time. And so usually we do end up drying the crops, you know, usually heating them up, using propane to, to help dry them out. We have not had to do that this year. What parts of the state have fared best this growing season and worst? Right now, anecdotally, it looks like where we're seeing some of the strongest crop this year is up in northwest and north central Iowa, but we're also seeing some of the worst crop, especially on, let's call it the eastern edge of north central, going into northeast. And a lot of that is due to, well, when you look at the drought monitor these days, where we see the worst conditions are on the eastern side of the state. I guess one thing we can point to that I'm aware of, no severe weather to, to flatten any crops, were there? Not really. I mean, that's the other thing here. And that was a concern, especially as we got into here at harvest, is we knew because of the development of the crops, the stocks, if you will, the you know, the, when you think about that plant standing up there, what we don't harvest, well, that's holding up that ear of corn for us to go pick it there. When we get crops that dry down like they have now, we worry about that stock losing integrity and so falling over easier 
And true, we do worry about storms moving through and blowing those stocks down. We really haven't had those events this fall, and that's, again, helped us move with a very quick harvest this year. Chad, what can you tell us about the prices farmers are looking at for their corn and beans? I would say that's probably the biggest, bigger challenge now as we're looking at our farming community. They have watched their prices decline over most of this this year because of the market's expectations of, let's call it, bigger production writ large across the country. So our prices are down now roughly oh, 20 25% from where they were at a year ago this time. So while we are seeing yields roughly the same as last year, we're not seeing prices nearly as strong this year as they were last year. What do you see when you look to the 2024 growing season? Well, the expectation, and USDA just released their long-term projections, which give us a lookout for 2024, and they indicate we're going to see a little bit less corn being planted across the nation, a few more acres going into soybeans, but again, this bigger challenge of probably another set of large crops hitting the marketplace next fall, and a challenge of rebuilding demand to hopefully hold up prices. So the price slide is expected to continue as we look forward into 2024. Mm-hmm. Soil soil moisture must be down. Uh, we need we could use a um, you know some good precipitation over the winter months, right? We definitely could. Uh, at least there, the last I saw from the the National Weather Service in their seasonal drought outlook is they are looking for some improvement as we look at the eastern side of the state of Iowa, where we still may be challenged based upon their forecast is up in the northwest corner where they expect the drought to persist. Yeah, what a beautiful day we have here. And I think just fine weather over the next few days. Uh, is that is that going to last as far as you know? Uh, as far as I've seen in the forecast, the answer is, yeah, this is, seems to be the forecast through Thanksgiving as we look out there. And I know a lot of farmers, not only are they wrapping up their harvest, but they've been able to do a lot of that fall field work as far as tillage and fertilization that they like to try to do in preparation for the next growing season. Okay. Chad Hart, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Chad Hart of Iowa State University Extension. Coming up after a short break, we'll meet a delightful writer from Singapore and groove into the weekend with Mark Simmet of IPR Studio One. Stay tuned for the rest of your Friday News Buzz from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, before we groove into the weekend, let's continue 
now with our series of conversations with established writers from around the world. Since 1967, over 1,600 writers from more than 150 nations have taken part in the International Writing Program's Fall Residency at the University of Iowa. This year, there were 34 writers from 30 different countries who took up this 10-week residency here in Iowa, which just concluded. Uh, We've gotten to know six of them so far here on River to River News Buzz. Um, We've uh, visited with writers from Egypt and Israel, from Greece, Poland, Jamaica, the Netherlands. Today, a final seventh conversation, uh, seventh writer, this one from the island country of Singapore in Southeast Asia. It was recorded last week uh, before the group of IWP writers left Iowa. We want to welcome now Noelle Q. de Jesus. She is a fiction writer, editor, and translator who is a resident of Singapore. Welcome to our program. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. You are an author of uh, collections, uh, including Cursed and Other Stories, that's from 2019, and Blood Collected Stories 2015. And uh, that one won the 2016 Next Gen Indie Book Award, among uh, other works that you have written. And Noelle, I mentioned you're a resident of Singapore, and that's interesting because you have a very interesting background. Tell us about your background and and how you came to writing. All right. Well, uh, in terms of background, I have three countries I call home. I was actually born in the U.S., so I'm an American citizen. However, I grew up and was raised by Filipino parents in the Philippines, and so I'm physiologically and culturally Filipino. But when I became an adult and got married, my husband um, had work in Singapore and we moved there in 2000. And so I'm what they call a permanent resident of Singapore and have been part of the vibrant uh, literary scene there since since I moved there, actually, because I had been writing virtually all my life. How and, early did you start writing? Oh, grade school. Yeah, I did it in some form, sometimes verbally lying, telling stories <laughs> to people, whopping tales and, and that sort of thing. But yes, I always felt that, I'm, that I was a writer and I always felt compelled to tell stories. My, my trade was copywriting and advertising because you don't, you're not a novelist right off the bat and certainly can't put money on the table from it. Not when you're from the Philippines, so, so I had to get a job. The, you started in the commercial sector. I, I did, because I recognized that writing is writing is writing. And I get to practice my craft, not necessarily the fiction part of it, but the language part of it, doing writing, commercial writing. Whether it was for magazines, advertisements, podcasts nowadays. Yep. I'm pretty much a flexible copywriter who will do that, and if you pay me, I will write. <laughs> <laughs> now you've written some uh, really recognized uh, novels uh, in, in the past well, few uh, years. Well, short story collections. Short story collections here. Yes. And I think you have a, a piece of, of what is called microfiction That's to share right. with us. Perhaps tell us what microfiction is, first of well, all. Well, um, microfiction is it's a, really a function of length, uh, um, as the word suggests. Flash fiction has been around forever, and people, because of attention spans and TikTok and all that, it's just getting shorter and shorter. And so um, after having edited two collections of flash fiction in the Philippines, I and a, and a Singaporean poet have come up with a latest book, which just came out two weeks ago, 
called Microfiction from Asia, Missed Connections. And those stories are all 300 words or less. That's a challenge. It is a challenge, but it's great fun. Mm. And and I, as a married empty nester, and as someone who has, ha- has had to hold a job, I've always written fiction on the side, and short, short stories are easier to finish than novels. Okay. And as Joyce Carol Oates says, there is a lot of achievement in finishing something. If you're mm. a writer, you want to finish something. Yeah, not get perhaps bogged down in a big, long novel, and then you don't work on it because, oh, there's so much to do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It gives you, it's, it's sort of the bonsai of literature <laughs> where, you, where it's easier to, to let something develop when it's a small thing and you have control over it. What will you read for us, Noelle? I will read for you a piece that was uh, published in slightly different form at Fiction Attic Press in San Francisco, and it's microfiction. The title is Being Honest. I'm sorry, but you're just so. Besides, it would feel right. You know it would, he said to the woman he had hired on behalf of his wife, someone from a country he had only heard of never visited. She sighed before replying, it would feel fantastic, maybe, but underneath it would feel terrible. She glanced up at him and marveled at the color of his eyes. Besides, you you and I don't even like each other that much. He mulled over what she said, like someone taking a bite of foreign food, gradually recognizing the taste of truth. And they both walked on in silence while she pushed the pram in which his only child slept, her hands clenched tight on the bar to keep from letting go. Mm. Now, is the point of a piece of fiction like that? It's wonderful. But Noelle's a pe- point of fiction. You think you know what's going on. Your, your mind is, is surrounding it with context because you're guessing what they're doing. That's right. But you may or may not be right. Now, the pram threw me off at the end, so... Do, do you reveal, do you want to say what it's well, all about, is, or is that left to the reader? It's very clear what it's all about, I think, but I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's not clear, then something's wrong, and I didn't do my job. No, it is clear. But <laughs> it, 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 the microfiction is, you have it. The intention is not just to hear it once, but to keep coming back to it. In fact, the most powerful microfiction will, will resonate at levels. You read it once and you think, oh. You read it a second time and you think, oh. And you read it a third time okay. and you think, oh, my God. <laughs> that's the idea. That's For me, that's the idea of microfiction. Because if, it, if it's just a one-off that you get in the first reading, then it almost isn't worth reading again, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. However, a, a, a really good one will keep you going back. It's not the best thing to read aloud because you never see it. So I'm hoping that people will look for it on uh, Fiction Attic Press or or look for any pieces of microfiction because um, they bear rereading. You're kind, of, you're kind of sleuthing, going back. It's a, it's a bit of a puzzle. It's a little puzzle mm-hmm. with a punchline. With a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Noelle, I want to ask about your time here because uh, you are at the end of your residency, 10, 12 weeks here since the end of August, this g- wonderful group of writers from 30 different countries you've been with here. What has it been like for you? I will have to say it has been a marvelous ride for me personally. I did not get to do 
as much writing as I thought I would, and that's a function of having a very active WhatsApp chat <laughs> and my being a very social person mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. However, meeting all these writers was a huge, a huge experience, and it has been, I have to say, strange and sometimes wonderful. Strange and sometimes wonderful. Your residency, along with these writers from around the world, has come at a very difficult time Indeed. Uh, in the global community. The ongoing war in Ukraine, of course, uh, the outbreak of war uh, between Israel and Hamas, uh, right in the middle of your 10-week residency here. I'm, what's that been like, and what kind of conversations has has this, uh, the, the, this world... Uh, uh, what kind of conversations has this brought about with writers from around the world that you've had? The world, the current environment of communication and being careful and being safe has, of course, I feel, and it's only my opinion, given us some more restraint perhaps than we would have ordinarily, say, in the 90s or the early 2000s. In other words, people are sensitive and people are have strong feelings. And so a place for actually thrashing it out and discussing. We do have, as you said, so many people who are directly or indirectly affected by both these current events, the Ukraine and horrifying situation in the Middle East. But people have very, very definite opinions. And some people don't know enough. So it causes some kind of um, difficulty and challenge because nobody wants—it's an idea where the two, there are two sides, but there are also other sides. Many sides. Too many sides. And I actually like that because that's what I do in my fiction. But in reality, it's, it's rather hard to suss out, uh, negotiate all the sides without hurting or, or, or causing um, injury. Mm-hmm. of feelings, because people feel strongly about their home and their countries and their people, of yeah. course. And it, it has been terrible. But the opinions are not just black and white. There are so many shades of gray. How do you think your time here, Noel, in Iowa with these writers, other writers from around the world, will inform your work, is informing your work right now? You said you didn't get as much writing done as you had hoped. Oh, that is the gift, actually. That is the gift because I uh, learned so much about human nature, mm. about um, what you think you know and what um, human beings who have their own you know, backgrounds and uh, traumas, when they all come together and when they're writers who, of course, feel strongly and have like strong egos and we're all thrown together, I learned that Sometimes there's just no way to bridge certain connections. Sometimes you can connect. Sometimes you have to be content with this kind of relationship instead of a relationship that's closer. But you still have to get along. And I I really feel we've done that for the most part. And I'm proud of the way, for the most part, we've functioned. All I can say is it could have been a lot worse <laughs> Considering that we're writers, it could have been a lot worse. And so I leave here thinking 
we did as well as we could. Right. Considering everybody, um, everybody's feelings. And we know now more about each other and our backgrounds. And we need to bring a little more empathy and understanding, I think, to all our relations. Not just our fellow writers, but like in the world. You've been a delight. Oh, that's, thank you very that's much. That's the way you've come off to me. Oh, well, that's always uh, a, a nice bonus and gift. <laughs> <laughs> Noel Q. De Jesus, a fiction writer, uh, editor, translator, resident of Singapore, uh, Filipino-American background uh, to boot. Um, Noel, t- tell us quickly, how can people find out more about your writing? I am so Googleable, it almost <laughs> isn't funny. If you really wanted to read something, you will find it, and... Although the two books are not available on Amazon, they are available through my publisher in Singapore. So there's all sorts of ways. I'm all over the place. All right. Noel, it's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Just about to wrap up this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News uh, on this November 10th, 2023. On this date in 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald sunk in Lake Superior. We all remember that. And we all remember the famous Gordon Lightfoot tune. Mark Simmett joins me now. I'm guessing that's not going to groove us into the weekend, right? Mark? I really wish I had that <laughs> queued up for you, Ben. That is a great song. It and, is. Uh, it is indeed. You know. Now we're all hearing it in our heads. But you're going to replace that tune in our heads with something new? What is it? Yeah, we've always got something new here at Studio One. And uh, I've got first up for you uh, on this edition of the show, uh, The Mountain Goats, new album. This band has been around for a long time. In fact, I know I've talked about them with you before, but they have a new record out. It's called Jenny from Thebes. And uh, I'm going to play a track here that I think is just a really great example of why uh, the, uh, the front man, the songwriter of The Mountain Goats, John Darneal, is just, uh, there's no one like him. He, he writes lyrics like no one else, and he delivers lyrics like no one else. And I think you can hear that in this song called Jenny Three. Jenny came to get me. She'd been gone for several years. Aging motorcycles purr like cats when they grow near. And I was crying. I could barely make the frame out through my tears. She did long before we did. She did, long before we did Jenny, you did, long before I did Jenny 3, the name of that tune from the Mountain Goats, uh, their new album, Jenny from Thebes. I like it very much. What do you have to take us out with, Mark? I have a track from a gentleman named Robert Finley. He's a 69-year-old blues and soul singer and guitarist born in Louisiana, Performed for many, many years before he finally was able to make a record just a few years ago. He hooked up with uh, Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys after that. And now uh, Dan Auerbach is his producer and releases the music of Robert Finley on his label. A new record out just uh, very recently called Black Bayou. And this is What Goes Around Comes Around. Wait a minute. Let me tell you something. I think I had nothing But I'm living my life The best I can And it's not my problem That you don't understand 
love the energy and that voice of Robert Finley. What goes around comes around. Mark, great selection to take us out with. Thank you so much for grooving us into the weekend. As always, my pleasure, Ben. River to River today, produced by Caitlin Troutman, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend.